G'day, everyone. Welcome to Talking Leadership. This is Eric Perez welcoming you back to not just our ongoing series of discussions around leadership, but the particular series around leadership as it pertains to the Australian military. And as always, I've got my co-host in crime, Mr. Ben Devison, with me. How are you, Ben? I am great, Eric. How are you? Good. Can I welcome to the podcast, Matina Jewell. How are you, Matina? I'm very good. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me on today. Mate, not a worry. Um, this, this is fantastic. So just I'd like to give the listeners a bit of your background. So if you indulge me for a second, I'll just um, give the listeners a bit of an overview. So Major Martina Jewell grew up in the hinterland of Byron Bay and joined the Army at the uh, age of 17. She had a 15-year military career with the following highlights. So she served on five missions and earned nine military and war medals, is the only Australian to have received two Republic of Lebanon war medals for acts of bravery on the battlefield and being wounded in combat, completed physical, physically demanding Navy divers course, served with the American Navy SEALs, tracked down warlords in the Solomon Islands, fast rope from helicopters and boarded smuggler ships in the Arabian Gulf, and was posted as a peacekeeper with the United Nations in Syria and Lebanon. She was medically retired and has served on the Prime Ministerial Advisory Council and continues to champion uh, change for our injured war veterans, which is a fantastic thing to be doing. Congratulations to you. Among her many honorary roles, Martina is a founding ambassador for Project Thankful, a movement partnered with the UN to help empower women and children globally. Martina has also been featured in the ABC's Australian Story, is a best-selling author, and her life story has been optioned for a global feature film. And finally, she, uh, we've got her on today to share her insights on leadership and resilience uh, as, a, as only she can bring from her experience. So, Martina, welcome. Thanks again, Eric. Wow, sort of sitting there <laughs> listening to all of that. Uh, I thank you very much for having me along today and I, I hope that your listeners yeah, can take something away from my experiences and, and bring those lessons from the battlefield into, uh, into the boardroom and their own business. I look at what you do and what you've done and I sit here thinking, well, today I've had five coffees and two client meetings and I've been in a pretty safe air-conditioned boardroom most of the morning, so uh, it does put a whole lot into context. So uh, I just wanted to add my thank you and respect for your service and really looking forward to this conversation. Oh, thanks, Ben. I think, you know, it's, it's just that useful perspective that we can all take. You know, we, we sometimes get bent out of shape with our first world problems. You can have a little step back and think about, you know, what else is going on around the world even just to be able to give us our own perspective of how fortunate we are to be in this country, uh, in Australia, particularly during COVID right now. I think all of us are feeling a lot of gratitude to be Australians. What was the beginning of your leadership pathway? Well, I think, Eric, obviously at 17, finishing year 12 and, and choosing a career path in the military as an officer, going to the Australian Defence Force Academy and then on to Duntroon. So four years of military training as, as an army officer uh, before graduating as a young lieutenant at, uh, I think, about age 21. That obviously was a, a, you know, a conscious decision to choose a path of, of leadership in a career. But I think my leadership journey actually commenced a lot earlier than that, sort of in my childhood at school, you know, through various leadership opportunities. And, and I think probably pivotal was my opportunities on the on the sporting field. I was very fortunate to represent Australia in a, a couple of sports before I joined the military. At age 16, I toured China playing volleyball. And I think that was a real, you know, a moment in my life. Of, it was the first overseas trip that I'd ever been on. But actually seeing poverty firsthand, you know, China all those years ago, years ago in, in Beijing and Shanghai, seeing how other communities live. I was often and captain of the sporting team and so you know I, I deliberately came back from that trip wanting to pursue a career where I could be a leader but in a team environment travel overseas and help disadvantaged communities um, there were a whole number of things that sort of that I'd sort of made as a you know reverse engineer try to find a career that would fit all the things that I wanted as a result of 
that trip to China. And, you know, the Australian Defence Force Academy, to be an officer in the Army, was sort of what ticked all of those boxes of the things that I wanted to continue pursuing in my life. So I'd say, you know, that leadership journey started you know, quite young for me as a teenager. One thing I think Ben may want to comment on this, almost every podcast guest we've had has mentioned of sport somewhere in as part of that leadership process. And uh, I guess uh, uh, myself, I'd, I'd never thought about it too much, but there is something around the sporting arena uh, that lifts your innate leadership skills if you've got them or want to uh, hone them. And that, that's come out quite strongly. Would you agree with that, Ben? I'd absolutely agree with that, Eric. And I hear a lot of similar stories of our colleagues who went into ADFA or Duntroon. Uh, and I, I think that that's obviously part of that, uh, as Matina would re- remember, the very uh, complex selection process we all went through to enter the officer training academies of the Defence Force. And, and I, even in my own background, I tended to lean towards the leadership roles in my sporting teams, captain of cricket teams and captain of uh, AFL football teams and the like. So it, it is a, a common thing. And obviously the, the leadership, upper echelons of leadership in the Australian military like, like to see that in their potential officer candidates. As a parent with two young daughters, I see the benefits of sport, of getting kids into sport. It, it teaches them not only leadership skills, but also just discipline and particularly those team sports. It gives them that opportunity to be reliant on others, be part of a team, you know, understand that it's more than just themselves. So I, I really encourage kids of any age and adults as well, you know, to seek those benefits from sport. It gives so many positives. Absolutely. So, Martina, thinking about your time in the the military and then beyond in your uh, your new ventures. Tell me your thoughts on the leadership in the military versus the civilian setting. What are your thoughts on the contrast, if there are any? And I think there's definitely contrast from what I've seen, that transition uh, from military and then to, to business and particularly in the corporate space. One, I think, you know, the Defence Force, the Australian Defence Force in particular, uh, invests a lot of time, energy and money into training their leaders. And, you know, and obviously there's, there's so much variety. There's some businesses that are doing that really well with they're actually investing in their leaders, making sure they're getting opportunities to grow. I think though the Defence Force, from my experience, really does put a huge amount of effort into that leadership capability and to training people, even in giving them opportunities to lead, and particularly at such a young age. I guess if I look back to my career, by the time I was 23, I had specialised in amphibious warfare, so water transport. So I was a logistics officer, but specialised in water transport, amphibious operations. The Australian Defence Force had just purchased two new amphibious platforms, two new Navy ships. It was the first time we'd done amphibious warfare since World War II. And, you know, at that stage, I was 23. I'd actually just been promoted to captain, but two weeks into this job, I was actually embarking on board HMAS Canimbra. I was second in command of that department. My boss, who was a, an army major, fell ill and left the ship and he actually never returned. So I was promoted twice in the, the space of two weeks uh, from lieutenant to briefly captain, then acting major. And that particular role as, as commander of the army department on Canimbra, part of my responsibilities were to, to coordinate uh, and execute the amphibious offload of, of not only the troops of Canimbra, the army force that we'd embark but also of multiple Navy ships simultaneously. So there were times where I had a thousand soldiers, all their vehicles, all their equipments, you know, their, their tanks, armoured personnel carriers, artillery guns, all of that sort of the, uh, equipment that I'd have to get off Navy ships 
and simultaneously getting them across uh, an, a beach and potentially putting them into enemy terrain. And so to run those operations, again, at 23, a thousand people moving, you know, I had at my disposal six helicopters and 10 watercraft. And I guess if you even just look at the, you know, the amount of money that's sitting in those sort of assets, most civilian organisations and businesses would be fairly reluctant to give a 23-year-old <laughs> that amount of uh, equipment and machinery and money. Uh, but also, you know, in those situations, you've actually got people's lives. You know, you, you're actually manoeuvring uh, people in a, a threatening environment. So if I look at just that one scenario from my career and transfer it to business, I think there is a reluctance, a different age category where companies are comfortable to put people into those leadership positions. So, you know, I'll often talk about sudden leadership. We put huge responsibility on very young uh, shoulders in some very hostile and rapidly changing environments on battlefields around the world. And we do that frequently. It is expected in the military that young people will command and lead and we'll step up to those responsibilities. It just it just beggars belief that in the military context, you're looking after high value assets and people's lives, and they're under your influence. Where in the corporate sector, there may be dollars attached to an asset, but that's it. And so, changing that mindset is is an interesting battle in of itself. Because one thing that I'm starting to see in some of the, because I'm examining the first hundred podcasts that I've done, that this this little thing around experience in the role is something people really value. Well, I might add a point there, Eric, and in terms of that contrast, I think the, and we've seen this over previous podcasts uh, and Matina has articulated it perfectly. And whilst I, I can't talk of the dizzy heights of the thousand soldiers and, you know, enormous amounts of resources and equipment, but I certainly remember that very first uh, week that I marched into my unit after being a graduate from Duntroon and my officer commanding, who was a major as well, handing me a, a relatively thick booklet and said, hey, this is your sub-account, Lieutenant Deverson. Now, that, that's the right phrase, isn't it, Martina? A sub-account that, that I had to yeah. sign over to myself. And I remember seeing, because I was in the, in the Signals Corps and we had some pretty amazing kit, you know, in terms of satellite equipment and radio and, and various other trunk uh, radio telecommunications equipment. And I remember seeing the very bottom corner of the last page and I was signing up to being responsible for $6 million of worth of equipment. And as I was a 19-year-old at the time, so pretty humbled by that experience thinking, gee, I better not stuff this up. You know, so I'll make that point too. And, and Martina articulated in a far more uh, hostile environment with the, that rapidly changing context. But the thing that I think is so different, Martina did it for four years, I did it for 18 months, is we were effectively thrown into the deep end and were constantly assessed, constantly trained and, and constantly adjusting our style in a pure leadership training environment. And many of our corporate colleagues, uh, as you say, Eric, are promoted based on a technical skill set and they may attend a development program here and there. They may have the, the privilege of working with someone like Martina and developing their own leadership skills, but they don't have that four-year journey of developing leadership. And that's probably why the military is so willing to hand over millions of dollars of people and, sorry, millions of dollars of equipment and hundreds and hundreds of people to a 23-year-old captain temporary major. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that too, Martini, because you probably have clients now that are in senior roles that, that really have no leadership training at all. Yeah, absolutely, Ben. I completely agree with everything you've said there, that you know, it is that dedicated training to leadership. Mm. And as you say, yeah. for such a long period of time, I mean, it was four years for me, my initial training, and then, you know, 
an ongoing across the 15 years, you're always doing leadership courses. You're you know, basically every day refining, developing as a leader and specific training every year. And I think that is a big difference to what I have seen in the business world, that dedication. I think also the the training that the military do is really preparing us for that, you know, that moment on the battlefield when you've got incoming rounds and you're in the worst case scenario. So also what I've seen from businesses when I've talked to them about, you know, we actually literally go out and deploy in the field. We don't sit around an office sort of planning of how or training how we're going to operate on the battlefield. We try and simulate the war zone as best as we can with simulators. And look, nothing's quite like actually being in the thick of it on the receiving end of, of incoming rounds. But we try and train for those scenarios and create that complex and uncertainty of the battlefield. We, we create the worst case scenario. And in just even in terms of decision-making capabilities of our people, we want to make sure that they've got that flexibility in their thinking that they you know you do all the strategy all the planning to deploy you have all the backup plans in place you've done your actions on on what you expect the enemy to do in these certain situations and unfold but you've also got to have that flexibility of thinking your leadership team in, in particular but the entire force to adapt rapidly to some, you know scenario z that no one ever thought could be possible suddenly unfolds on the battlefield and i think it's that uh, ability in the military uh, and particularly in the leadership category that we're talking about right now is that to to deal and and to work with uncertainty and lack of control um, and I think that's you know some key aspects that are coming out now in the COVID era where I'm seeing business leaders really struggling with those two components of uncertainty suddenly they can't control most of what's happening in their business and I think there are two factors that military personnel are trained to actually to live with day to day on the battlefield because you know, on the battlefield, we can't control the enemy and what they do. So there's kind of 50% of the equation on the battlefield that you simply you know, can't predict or, or control certainly what they're doing, the environment, the terrain. There's lots of uncertainty that you've just got to live with and also that, you know, lack of control element. So, you know, I think the military also trains us to be flexible and adaptive, but to focus on the things that we can control and, you know, respond appropriately as other things unfold. I think it's a couple of those two aspects uh, that are, are critical in our training that we almost remove expectations. We really manage expectations to a level of that we train. I remember doing an exercise and Ben, you might've had a similar situation where we'd been outfield for two weeks. We're on the trucks coming back. We're already planning what we're going to do when we got, you know, that first night leave, get into a set of clean clothes because we've you know, been living in the field, no showers, no beds, uh, no, no food and accommodation. Um, so, you know, very jubilant sort of feeling. And then the trucks drove through the front gates of Duntroon, past the parade ground and straight back out the gun gates out the back. Uh, a lot of confusion in the trucks as to what was going on. And, you know, when they pulled over and announced we're going straight back into the field into another exercise. And the whole purpose was to teach us what we didn't have control over and to prepare us that you need to keep going for as long as the war goes. You can't just kind of have an end date. I think that's one of the things right now where businesses are struggling that no one can tell you how long COVID's going to go for and therefore how long we have to modify the way we're operating. That military mindset to sit with that and to say we need to keep going. One thing just as an observation here and, and um, thank you for that response to both of you. I think from the, the non-military perspective and this is a human nature thing, path of least resistance is what people revert to and I think if I'm hearing what you were saying before that the army teaches you to not go to that as your default but to adapt to the environment as it changes because um, it could be quite easy in, in the corporate sector to do nothing and sit back and let things happen and I've, I've seen the the better more not better the more effective leaders that I've run into in, in my careers and I can only use my perspective on this is that they will move with the change in the environment try and find the opportunity if one exists and that's not 
or leaders. And I think the better ones tend to do that well. Getting back to the example that we talked about, Martina, before we set up the podcast, can you give us an example of a leadership situation that you faced in the military that still resonates with you that our listeners could learn from, I guess, from your experience in your time in the Army? Yeah, I guess that there's so many situations, Eric, or examples that I could could draw on right here to answer that question as best as I can for your listeners. Um, probably one that really does stand out was while I was serving with the United Nations. So it was actually a representation role, representation Australia with the UN. This was my fifth overseas uh, deployment, overseas mission, and it was a 13-month posting to the UN. So I spent seven months in Syria, the last six months working in Lebanon. And being a representation role, I didn't deploy with an Australian uh, force around me. So you're sort of an individual that was deploying. And so for me, you're working with 23 different nations in that particular mission. Uh, my my two teams in, in Syria and Lebanon, I was the only Australian in those teams. I was also the only woman serving with UN in those entire patrol regions. So a number of challenging experiences, you know, being a woman operating in these two Arab countries. And I only had two weeks left to go of my entire 13 months with UN. Uh, I was actually on my very last patrol. I was due to come off the base the next day and, and go on holidays in Egypt. But unfortunately, the Hezbollah and I was actually stationed uh, at a, a patrol base called Kiam, which was right at the junction of the three countries of Israel, Lebanon, and Syria. I was sort of basically right in southern Lebanon, overlooking the junction of those borders. We were surrounded by three Hezbollah bases. And uh, in a split second, we went from monitoring a peace agreement uh, between these countries uh, to full-scale war breaking out. So in that moment, the Hezbollah had actually ambushed an Israeli Humvee patrol down on the border and they, they killed three Israeli soldiers, captured two more, and they brought those soldiers back into Lebanon Lebanon to use as hostages in a negotiation with Israel. But, you know, in an instant, you know, war erupted right along that border. And I remember that Mayday call coming over the radio, uh, announcing that a war had started. And we literally, within minutes, started to have, you know, receiving incoming fire around us uh, from Israel being fired into, into Lebanon. So we had a number of near misses, like in the first hour of that war, I probably had the luckiest escape of my life where an Israeli fighter jet fired a 1,000-pound aerobomb. Now, these are big, massive bombs. They're over three metres long. I can actually still visualise the stabilising fins on this on this projectile. It, it came... I was at, on the observation deck of Kiam, which is an open deck. There's actually no overhead protection, which clearly was a bit of a design flaw in a war and this projectile came at eye level from it was no more than 30 meters away like it literally felt like I could put my hand out and touch this massive bomb as it went past me it was one of those moments that would have happened in a split second but just felt like it was all happening kind of in slow motion and I just had enough time to tell my teammates that were with me on the deck to get down as this bomb went past us to impact into the Hezbollah base that was closest to us it was actually only 75 meters away from us. Uh, and it completely destroyed that base. It, it blew up the, the Hezbollah base. And just the the blast wave itself from that missile hitting that base, it, like it shook our, our UN post like, like we're in an earthquake. There was a blast wave, a big fireball that went over us. And then the shrapnel started to, to land down on top of us. And, you know, I'm talking about huge, big chunks of concrete with twisted steel star pickets through them right down to, to fine pieces of metal shrapnel. 
But, you know, remarkably, not one of us, even though we were exposed on that rooftop, uh, even had a scratch on us, despite all of this incoming shrapnel around us. And I guess to try and put that incident into some sort of context for your listeners, the UN classified near miss from that type of weapon system. If a, a thousand pound aerial bomb fired by a fighter jet impacts one kilometre away from where you are, you know, you've had a really lucky escape, a near miss. So this bomb blow up just 75 metres from us really was a sheer miracle that we didn't take casualties at Kiam right then and there in that very first hour of this war. And we went on to survive, you know, uh, many, many days of near misses. There was thousands and thousands of violations a day that were reporting of the peace agreements between these countries. And at the end of uh, the first week, I was... um, tasked to, to command a convoy of armoured vehicles uh, to get us from Patrol Base Kiam through to the UN headquarters. And that was normally about a, a two-hour drive. And I had uh, under my command during that transit were two armoured personnel carriers. And I had 16 Indian and Ghanaian infantry soldiers in these two vehicles to provide sort of an armed escort to get us to headquarters. But instead of two hours, because unfortunately Israel commenced its ground invasion into southern Lebanon at that same time that I was tasked to do this journey. And so the Israelis were either using or bombing the roads that were on. And so it actually took two days under you know, heavy fire from both sides, from the Hezbollah and the Israelis for me to get that convoy uh, through to the headquarters. But I was at a, a position about, about 20, 30 minutes from the headquarters when I received information um, from my UN headquarters that Israel was about to get up the largest airstrike of that war and the road that I was on at that moment was due to be targeted during those bombing runs. So I'm in a situation, I'm told that fighter jets are in the air, they're inbound, you've got literally seconds and I'm needing to make some big decisions. I got conflicting advice um, from the two UN headquarters operating in Lebanon. One said return to Kiam, the other said push on to the headquarters and of course that made me the commander on the ground to make the ultimate decision. And I guess, you know, if we're looking at that scenario from a business perspective of decision making, balancing up risk management, decision-making and the responsibility associated with with these decisions. You know, it's a pretty big scenario in terms of, you know, having those lives of 16 soldiers that I knew the decision I made would impact directly on their lives. And so I guess, you know, from a leadership perspective, that, you know, one moment in my life can, you know, you can unpack that scenario to to bring out so many different lessons across all of those, um, you know, different factors that do affect leaders. Um, so not necessarily a financial risk associated with what you're doing, but, you know, you know, you've got a life risk that you're managing and having to make those decisions. And I guess when I talk to leaders in business about making decisions, particularly under pressure in crisis situations, situations you know I talk about momentum in our decision capacity where we need to be able as leaders almost remove the emotions from what we're dealing with and continue making decisions so that we can stay alive and and the worst case I could have done at that moment the worst thing that I could have done was if I become immobilized by fear and so I think we need to keep making decisions sometimes in those crisis moments we've got that momentum moving forward in a decision capacity then even if we make the wrong decision we can simply make another decision and get back on track far Mm -hmm. quicker than if we We've become immobilized with fear, unable to make a decision. Then that first decision, that first step forward, feels like such a big effort, and you know, to do if we rather than just being nimble and keep making decisions. So I guess you know, Eric, to answer your question, just drawing out one situation to talk about as a leader, what were some of the scenarios I faced? I mean, that one's probably the biggest, the toughest challenge I ever faced, and thankfully I did make the right decision in terms of pushing on for the headquarters. Tragically, the base that I'd left um, was targeted by fighter jets and, and the rest of my team were killed at that base uh, back at patrol base Kiam. So again, a, a lot of 
things as a leader to unpack in that situation of, you know, survival guilt, the risks associated, you know, and had I made that decision to go back to Kiam, we would have had another 16 lives that would have been lost in that moment. So, and, and of course I was injured in the transit too. So I lost my career as a result of, uh, of that decision, but it was still the right decision. I might leave that there and let you guys jump in with a question because I've just thrown a whole lot at you and your audience. In any situation that is high, high stress, lots of variables coming at you, that there's always going to be a degree of stress and fear that you're going to have to deal with in that situation. And it's not going to be a completely fear or question mark a free zone when you're trying to make a decision one way or another. Yeah, great question, Eric. I think you know, at the military training is designed to put you under pressure, to put you in that state where you're constantly under pressure and you make one decision, then there's another decision, another decision. I mean, I can still remember the, the trainers at Duntroon, you know, screaming at us, you know, make a decision, make it now and just continuing to put you in that scenario. So you, you're used to being under pressure and having to take action. Did, um, did you did you feel you were being, uh, there was a value judgment that when I say make a decision, make a decision or did the instructor does not care what the decision was just that you made the decision is that is that what they're aiming at well they're wanting you to, to one make a decision but also make the right decision so you know you want to make and you know you want to fail in practice not in the real thing so you want to you know and I guess that's another aspect we can talk about about seeing failure um, as opportunities rather than fearing that failure that you talked about Eric that you know we always learn something from our experiences even if they don't you know evolve the way that we wanted to or be the success we wanted but if we can give ourselves permission to at least just have a go at new things stretch those you know our comfort zones and push ourselves out there into that uncertainty where we're sort of uncertain terrain I think you know I feel like my entire 15 years in the army was, was operating in that sort of thrown in the deep end feeling you know that kind of is is useful in a training sense so that when you do encounter you know if, unfortunately if you end up in those scenarios where you are actually on a battlefield somewhere in the world that it's not the first time you've felt that sense of pressure and fear and I, I don't like to add to that too that for me even though I had this most incredible training in the Australian Defence Force and, and then, you know, also with the UN and all these experiences around the world, I still, particularly as an officer, one of my biggest fears was that when I did encounter being on a battlefield, if the rounds started cracking over my head, would that training kick in or how would I respond when we got out of the training environment and how would I respond in a real, you know, warlike situation? And I think that was always a question mark um, in the back of my mind, even though I've had this incredible training, will I respond appropriately? in those high pressure environments and thankfully that training did kick in and I was able to to take action and to to lead um, but for me my biggest fear was never being injured or killed on the battlefield myself but if I made a decision that led to an injury or death of one of my soldiers uh, that was always one of my biggest fears and I think that always guided my decision making where you know I always did my absolute best where you don't go into any of those decisions lightly because you know that there are you know very big consequences as a result of your actions in those environments and you're making split second decisions that have that life and death result attached to them so uh, it really does make you focus on the job at hand um, when you're in those environments to make sure that you do the best you can but at some stage you've got to also try and take that pressure off yourself and not be so focused on that where you then become consumed and unable to make a decision. And that's where I think fear is a really good thing to embrace as a leader, that you want to feel fear. I think if we fight fear and try and shut down that emotion of fear, it's quite futile. Um, fear will guide you and hopefully make you sharper, get the adrenaline running, you know, it will make you make the right decision rather than, you know, see these people talking about being fearless. I tell you what, on the battlefield, you know, fear will, will, is actually what will keep you alive. 
I think for listeners, Eric, the key thing that Martina said there was that a decision had to be made. And the worst thing you can do is just have paralysis and stop. And that is one of the key things to go back to a former question was what are the key differences I find between my military service and my corporate world is that as, dare I say, a natural leader with training in the military is that you're constantly reminding yourself that I'm it. And when when the shit does hit the fan, you've got to be the one ready to make a decision. I'm regularly saying that to myself in not only the way that I work with my informal roles with staff and all those various things, but even the simple stuff like when a fire alarm goes off and it's not a drill, everyone just sort of looks around looking left and right going, well, what do we do? And I'd, I'd often say, well, okay, this is me. I'm taking it. All right, guys, let's go. You know, and the decision has to be made and it might be the wrong one. And I've, I've seen some exceptionally gifted leaders uh, who have, in, sorry, in the corporate context, who have made those decisions and they have been wrong. But we, you know what? We just change them. And Martina's point there, you just get the ability to change it. And all that happens is the context is different now. But at least you've got some learnings from the decision that you can learn from either A, in that circumstance, or B, later on in life. But I think that was the key thing that I took away from Martina's story there that a decision had to be made and that's what leaders have to remember all the time absolutely then actually i talk about stepping up in those in my in moments those environments of sudden leadership military personnel have had that training have had that experience of yep it's me i'm i've got to step forward kind of you have to override a number of emotions to do that and so i see you know a lot in business now and in the corporate fields where people who have had technical expertise been promoted to such a senior level of the organization where they suddenly and you know encompass um leadership or management responsibilities for the first time and they've had no uh, training at a junior level and not much training when they've got to that very senior role to then suddenly become leaders and it's that step into that position of like okay well now i've got a lead i've now got a team rather than just being a technical expert and as we say you know going back to our military training ben of you know i think that is given where everyone is a leader we push leadership right down to the lowest level of the organization i mean the army we talk about the corporals run the army and that's our first level of leadership you know private soldier to corporal it's not necessarily the generals yes they're making that strategic decisions but we push that leadership and responsibility right down to those very you know lowest level of leadership and we want leaders at every single layer of the business and it simply comes down to you know in a military scenario we don't have time we don't have that luxury of time to make decisions so we need the people that are on that operational front line to be decisive and be able to be capable of making the decisions so you know we we empower those leadership levels right down um, to that level there's another interesting contrast i just want to make eric that i think is relevant to matina's discussion here is that the contrast with the civilian corporate sector versus the military sector is that I, I find that a lot of commercial civilian workplaces, be it private or public sector, they crave leadership. They really do. At every level, they want people to lead and they look for it. And I notice it more in the civilian world, believe it or not. And I think maybe, Matina, it's just that expectation equally. It's also that understanding that when, this, this, when it, they need to, the private soldier can make decisions that are best um, apply to him or her at that time. But I, I do find that employees in the corporate world are craving leadership. They want to know. 
how to get forward and how to move on with certain projects and they look for others to, to guide them and, and sadly in certain circumstances they don't get it it's that constant testing and retesting of your leadership skills in the army and giving you a chance to fail positively if, this, if that's such a thing that helps you to make the right decision when the when the proverbial hits the fan does that mm. resonate with you Martin? yeah I completely agree with what you're saying Eric I think if it's not in our job title, if it's not explicit, where it actually states your job is to lead, um, then people will want to sit back and say, oh, I don't, I'm not responsible. I don't have to lead. But I think in most careers at some point, we are thrown into a situation where we may have to step up in, and it's often in a crisis situation, step up and lead. And that takes even more confidence to do that if it's not part of your daily responsibilities. So I encourage my clients to try and nurture a culture in their organizations where they want leadership at every layer of the business. And as leaders that they nurture uh, aspiring leaders and try and get everyone to have that mindset. And I guess, you know, I have a saying of, you know, lead, even if it's not your job, you know, just get in and lead, you know, and I think coming from that military world where we appreciate people, you using their initiative that also transfers into the business world where you see people who are proactive you know and are willing to step up and if they make the wrong decision that you know if we've got a culture around that supports them for for at least trying having a go and learning from those experiences and hopefully as they're saying sort of fail positively that it's not a huge loss or a bad outcome from what they've done but if they learn along that way of you know developing their leadership skills and I think it is reticent for our leaders to actually find those opportunities for their people and nurture and support them so that when they do find themselves in a situation where they have to step up and lead they've at least had a bit of experience and confidence to do it well and best to their capabilities. I've always found the comment, particularly in my commercial life, is when employees will say to me, uh, Ben, you make the big bucks, you make the decision. And uh, I always push back on that and say, no, actually, I'm not going to make a decision until you provide me some options. Again, conscious of time, Matina, so I might push on. And I think we've covered a fair bit of a contrast, Eric. So I might move on to the question about, and really, you have seen it all. So I'm really interested in your thoughts on this question. The critical capabilities needed by leaders, what does Matina Jewell believe are those critical capabilities? Leadership is, you know, it's a lifelong experience and there's so many capabilities that are needed, I guess, to try and make something generalised for your audience. If I had to limit it to just three critical skills that I think leaders across business, regardless of the industry that you're in and regardless of the level that you're at, I think these three are the ones that I would put at the top of my list. Firstly, delegation, how to empower people through delegation. And, I, and delegation was one of those things I found very difficult, particularly as a young leader. I found it really hard to let go of my plans and actually you know, empower people to carry out the vision that I had in mind as a leader. And so I found delegation then went kind of hand in hand with the next skill set, which I think is communication. And I found those two skills of delegation and communication, you know, I, I couldn't do either of those skills to the high levels that was required of me until first I actually understood and knew my people. And so that interpersonal relationship skill, and I think it's something that people People in business are craving now, particularly the younger generation. They want to know that their boss, one, cares about them and has taken an interest in them and understands. And I found, you know, for me as a leader, you know, if you go back to that scenario that we talked about right at the very start of, you know, the amphibious warfare commanding role where, you know, moving a, a thousand people helicopters, watercraft, often we're working with special forces. So we weren't able to use lights or radios in those scenarios as well. So we're doing you know, black ops work. Yeah, I couldn't do all of that on my own. I couldn't move a thousand people uh, on my own. So I was kind of forced to learn that art of delegation. And, and I found that I couldn't be successful with that unless I knew each of my individuals in my team that were sort of you know, participating in that offload scenarios. If I knew their strengths and weaknesses and therefore could you know, assign the right person, right job, right skills, right time, that's only when that whole plan came together where I could delegate, communicate, 
and know my people and we'd have a successful mission objective. So they're kind of the three ones that if I, you know, I just had to live it to three, that I think that any leader, regardless of the business you're in, if you can nail those three skills, you'll be a long way along your leadership journey. Uh, the nature versus nurture question. Are leaders born or are they made? Oh, yeah, but I often get asked this, Eric. It's um for me personally, and everyone's got a different point of view on this, I think, but um, I think it's a combination of the two. I think anyone can be trained as a leader, but I think we also, you know, the, the very elite leaders, those that are, you know, have that charismatic skill set are kind of born with a bit of that in their personalities. And I think the combination of those two, of uh, training and what comes to you naturally, if you can get the, the combo together, they're the ones that will rise to be, you know, super successful leaders. I'll open to you first, mate. Any final thoughts? Oh, look, I've actually found, Matina, your experiences and description and willingness to share those has been a, a fantastic uh, example of particularly the contrast between the leadership in the military context and the civilian context. I think, as I said before, I'm humbled by the idea that you've experienced what you have and I sit here in a very air-conditioned office uh, on a daily basis, worried about the, the the next you know bill to be paid or whatever. But um, I am I, I'm gonna I, Eric knows I go a bit rogue, so I hope you don't mind me asking you a rogue question. If I may ask this, were you genu- genuinely terrified in those moments as as a human being in those circumstances? Were you gen- genuinely terrified about receiving rounds and and or were you simply on task? Yeah, Ben, absolutely. There were moments um, during that war where I say that I think the fear factor kept me alive. That um, keeps you adrenaline going that, you know, you're making instinctive response decisions. Um, I had a moment where I was running to the bunker of Kiam and, you know, a really badly designed base and that to get off the platform, to get to the bunker that was two stories below, you had to go down an exposed spiral staircase. It was on the outside of the building facing Israel where the rounds endangering us were coming from. And so, you know, you're completely exposed once you move um, you've only just got body armor on. That's the only thing that's protecting you, a helmet and a Kevlar vest. You're running to the bunker and we had incoming fire from Israel with their uh, 155 millimeter high explosive artillery rounds. And one of these shells landed, you know, 15, 20 meters in front of me. It had a partial ignition. So the shell split into three pieces. Um, the high explosive canister caught on fire, but it was a partial detonation because had that ignited the way that they're designed to that would have split that shell into you know over 2,000 pieces of hot metal shrapnel that at that close range you know artillery experts would tell you that would more than likely have been a fatal hit so it's one of those moments where you know it was luck that I, I survived that moment in my life and you know it's a terrifying situation in that moment you're in fight or flight response your body is you know your instincts are what keeps you alive in those moments it didn't matter how good my training was it wasn't my skill set that, you know, I evaded that, you know, life and death moment at that particular time. And I think, you know, the fear is about balancing, about being able to sit with that fear, have the fear there in the background, but be able to continue operating. And I guess that's, you know, part of what I'm thankful for in the military that gave me that balance of being able to, to be in terrifying moments, but remain calm and level-headed, even though inside you've got this terrifying fear. And I think, also, I was blessed to be a leader in those environments because for me, I was able to separate 
more away from my own personal fear of being injured or killed myself because my focus was on the on my team making sure that I was making the right decisions to protect them and keep them alive and so in many ways it was almost like a blessing uh, that burden of leadership was a blessing in that you know I was not so focused on my own life and my own health at that moment I had much bigger priorities of the entire team to look after uh, to get us to safety so um, to answer that question kind of quickly was that yeah there is a terrifying environment you've got people um, being injured and killed around you and you're knowing that every single second your your life's hanging in the balance as you go from day after day after day in those environments so you have to have uh, endurance to be able to to sit with that fear and and keep making decisions to hopefully stay alive i mean that that is a great way of looking at it Matina. And I think for listeners, Eric, my thought on that is that for those who are willing to lead and give it a go, and and Matina used the phrase burden of leadership, which is so true, but what it does do is it it literally creates notches on your belt that you can draw upon for life. And it, it, it's as difficult as it is to step up and leave within whatever context, be it under fire or getting a building clear when it's on fire or when it's just purely in a simple civilian commercial context, you you build skill and stepping up to lead is, is an example of where you just continually build effectively your resume of qualifications. And Ben, if I can add to that, I think all of those skill sets from, you know, from the military, from the battlefield are all transferable. It's just kind of the scenario has changed, the environment's changed, but all those underlying principles around leadership, resilience, tackling change, perspective, you know, all those things you, you bring across into you in business. And I use ever all of them, you know, every day now with my own team uh, in, a, in a commercial setting. Um, you know, thankfully, there's not quite as many bombs <laughs> and explosions as there used to be. But, uh, you know, I'm so thankful that I have all that training to bring across and, and continue adapting it for, for, the, for the corporate world. Well, we'll give you the last word, uh, Matina. Any final thoughts from you before we wrap things up? Because probably that's the, the only final thought I'd just like to give your listeners is that, you know, if we can use our own perspective shift each day that you know i think we are so fortunate to be in this country and um and actually all of us as australians we get to choose the lens that we want to see the world through each day and so maybe just have a think about what lens you chose this morning and what might be more useful tomorrow and in the future and i wish you all the greatest success in whatever path life takes you on uh in the future thank you matina uh for those listening you've been uh, tuned in again to talking leadership as always i'd like to thank our guest matina jewel for her time thank you and as always to my co-host in crime ben deverson thank you ben thank you eric thank you matina wonderful discussion really appreciate your time thanks again and i'll catch everyone on the next podcast thanks very much